Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello and welcome to Ayers on the Road. We're glad to be with you today. We enjoy these broadcasts, these podcasts. However you listen to them, we're here for you. As parents, as grandparents, as fellow strugglers in the battle to do the best on our highest priority, which is our kids and our spouse and our family in general. And whether you're a new listener or whether you've listened to us for a long time, welcome. We always love spending this time with you. We really do. And it's an interesting time of year for families. School has started in most parts of the country, most parts of the world. And that creates a whole new life for parents and a whole new pattern and those carefree days of summer are gone. We're back into the school year. We are, it is really interesting. We have had so many new starts this year. We have two new kids in kindergarten. We have new kids at elementary. These we are grandkids, I hasten grandkids. to Grandkids, yes, yes. <laughs> we have two going to a new junior high, one starting high school, two more starting college, and it really is pretty amazing. Oh, there have been boy. a lot of coming and going this week. And I must say, it's more fun as a grandparent getting them back in school than it was as a parent. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we can just sit back and enjoy it and watch them grow, and it's wonderful. And today, Linda, we're continuing on with this really interesting for us, and I hope for you, series where we're reviewing our earlier books. We're reviewing all of our books in this series, as a matter of fact, because all of them have to do with family. All of them have to do on some level with either parenting or marriage or family in general. And today we're talking about the fifth book we ever did. And you might at first wonder, what does that have to do with family? Because it's a book called The Birth That We Call Death. It's actually a book Ooh. about a book about dying, a book about the end of life, and and frankly, that has everything to do with families because everyone you know, and you yourself, and we ourselves, have experienced death within our families and among our friends, and how we deal with that has an enormous effect on our children and on our families in general. And not just when it happens, but go, you know, coming up to it, it is so important to talk about and, and to really um, reminisce about. I mean, it, we need to think about that every once in a while, even though it's a hard thing to think about. We all have dear people in our lives who pass on to the next life. Um, my dad has been gone for a long, long time, and I used to think I couldn't survive without him. I would... I, I would just crumple if he ever died, and of course he did. <laughs> yeah. But there's part of us because we didn't talk about it very much. Well, part of our culture is hesitates to talk about death, although I hasten to add not as much as some cultures. We almost went to a movie the other night. In fact, we would have, but it wasn't playing at the theater where we were. And it's about a Chinese family where the mother is is terminal and is going to die, but she doesn't know it. It's the grandmother. The grandmother, because the, the culture in China is you never talk about death. Uh, and, you, and you never tell people who are going to die that they are going to die, even if you know it, because it's just a completely taboo subject. And to some degree, that is the case in most societies. It's just not something people like to talk about. 
And yet there are studies that show that, that children who understand that death is something that, can, that, that is going to happen to all of us and that it's not something to be feared, and especially those who have some kind of a spiritual or religious faith in a life after death, those children are more resilient and more more capable of handling life than those who, who, who never think about it or talk about it. Well, there are some children and now and probably in your families who have never been to a funeral, never experienced death. Um, I, but I do have to say that we have had some experience with death. Um, I have a half-sister who died at our house just after the delivery of a third baby with cancer. And that was not a happy thing. We did not talk about the possibility of her actually dying. We just kept thinking, yeah. this is going to work. If we pray hard enough, it, everything's going to work out and it'll be fine. So that left a scar on me for a long time because it wasn't talked through. And I think you have had an amazing... Actually, the same year... Well, the same year my, my father died. I was 15 years old and I was holding his hands. He died in his bed in our home and... I was holding his hands when he passed on, and that was a tough thing for a 15-year-old. And You know, in some ways, Linda, those early experiences we had, I think, are what led us to want to write this book. And, and there's a lot behind this. There's a lot behind the title, The Birth, that we call death. It's an attempt to help people, and particularly families and children, understand death in a new paradigm as a birth, as, some, as an ongoing portion of eternity. Yes, and I have to mention, because we're going to the funeral of our dear friend tomorrow, right. whom we've known for 40 years. Uh, this is a wonderful woman. Her name is Virginia Stevens. And she is the epitome of the example of how to pass on. Well, because and she's an example of, I mean, this will be a celebration, this funeral, because she's absolutely. lived such a long life into her early 90s, I think, or late 80s. Well, her husband, we just visited with them just before we left for the summer, and we knew she had cancer, we knew she was on her last treatment, they couldn't do anything more for her, but she was still happy. Her husband has um, Parkinson's disease, yeah. and they still got up every morning. And dance in the kitchen. Danced in the kitchen. They are, um, she's a dancer, tap dancer, started out, and, and now they've danced all their lives, and they do puzzles, and then they go through the kitchen on their way when they're dancing and make cookies, these right. monster cookies for the homeless kids at East High School. This, this couple has done more for people in the world, needy people, than anybody we've ever known. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Linda, because this there are easy deaths and hard deaths, and in, in, if there is such a thing as an easy death, this is one where, where someone has lived a wonderful and long and glorious life and really are ready to go. Yes, the hard but, ones are, are when, I mean, the ultimate hard ones are when children die or when people die in accidents uh, or unexpectedly. A young mother or, you know, something that's unexpected, but Honestly, it's never really easy because no, she did die people, of cancer. People love her and, and depend I've on her. I've seen that firsthand. It is really not a good thing. Well, and those are all things we were trying to capture in this little book, The Birth We Call Death. And I want to say we feel like you who listen to this podcast are, are, are friends and, and you know us to some degree. And we'd like to be as personal as we can. And we wrote this book when we were living in the Washington, in the Washington D.C. area. We were actually living in McLean, Virginia. Oh, honey. And 
they allowed me to go and, and spend a lot of time writing in the Washington, D.C. LDS Temple. I have to say that you wrote this book. Well, yeah, but you, well, again, we're having this conversation every week, Linda. But we, You're so we, nice, we well, keep saying we. But. We consider all these books to be ours, even though, and both of our names are on many of our books, our best ones, in my opinion, but there's some with just your name and some with just my name, but we really work on them together. But I did have this remarkable opportunity to sit day after day in this sacred place what we consider a very sacred place, the LDS Temple in Washington, D.C., and work on this book. And I felt I needed to be in a place like that in order to ponder these things. And by the way, in, in counter to your little statement you just made about me writing it, let me I'm going to read you something that you haven't read for years, Linda, in my um, acknowledgement at the start of the book. I said, for me, writing is the process of trying to capture in tangible words the thoughts that come in intangible spirit. And then I also said, in my writing efforts, I appreciate more than I can say the help of my wife, Linda, who has always been a better receptor than I of the intangible and a better judge than I of the tangible. So there. (laughs) There you go. That's my statement to you. And of course, um, we did this with with Paul H. Dunn and all those years ago, who um, was a general authority at the time. He was kind of our mentor and in our many mentor, ways. and a, you know, a fantastic supplier of information for this because he was so brilliant. And a lot of this book has to do with quotes that come from people much wiser than ourselves. And at the beginning, you'll see that a lot of these quotes led to the name of the book. Why did we call it the birth that we call death? Listen to just a few of these quotes. Henry Ward Beecher said, Death, translated into the heavenly tongue, that word means life. And um, think about this one. Seneca said, The day which we fear as our last is but the birthday of eternity. Rayendrath Talgore said, Death is not extinguishing the light, it is putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. It's a beautiful one. And, and Samuel Coleridge said, Death but supplies the oil for the unextingu- inextinguishable lamp of everlasting life. So this, this idea of trying to perceive death as a birth is, is an old idea. Uh, think about this one from Benjamin Franklin. It is the will of God and nature that these mortal bodies be laid aside when the soul is to enter real life. This is rather an embryo state, a preparation for real living. A beautiful thing, Benjamin Franklin. And the last sentence of that, a man is not completely born until he is dead. That is really interesting. Isn't that the, 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 the play on the words of birth and death is so fascinating. Maurice Masterlink said, Let us accustom ourselves to regard death as a form of life, which we do not yet fully understand. And Brigham Young said, What we call death is the operation of life. What we commonly call death does not destroy the body. It only causes a separation of the spirit and body. So you see where the title came from. We wanted to, and we wanted to try to teach children 
even though none of us can comprehend eternity or can comprehend things beyond mortality in a clear way, we wanted to plant in the minds of even small children that this is a phase of life. This this earth is one place we live and there are other places and and trying to build into children that sort of comforting feeling that there is something beyond this life. Well, I do have to say that, you know, you're talking a little bit about the tragic deaths um, at the first. And my sister had a wonderful husband. They'd just gone on a cruise, um, their first cruise, and had a wonderful time and come home, and he was not feeling well at all. And just to make a really a long story short, or kind of a short story short, um, he went into the hospital the day after Christmas because they hadn't been able to treat him on Christmas Day. And uh, he went in at 9 a.m. They diagnosed him with stage four stomach cancer, and he died at one that afternoon. And so no. you know, those kind of startling things. And then she thought she couldn't go on with life after that because. It was just it's so sudden, and yet amazing things have happened in their lives. The, she has seven children, and they were all so supportive, have helped them so much through this. Two more really quick quotes before we take a break, and then we've got a whole different perspective on death when we come back after the break. But uh, a man named John Taylor, President John Taylor, a former president of the LDS Church, said, while we are mourning the loss of our friend, others are rejoicing to meet him beyond the veil. And we put in this little metaphor, in a beautiful blue lagoon on a clear day, a fine sailing ship spreads its brilliant white canvas in the fresh morning breeze and sails out into the open sea. We watch her glide away magnificently through the deep blue and gradually see her grow smaller and smaller as she nears the horizon. Finally, where the ship and sky meet, she slips silently from sight and someone near me says there she is gone gone where gone from sight that is all she is still as large in mast and hull and sail still just as able to bear her load and we can be sure that just as we say there she is gone another says there she comes i love that i think (laughs) it's so awesome we'll be right back after this brief break Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. And we're back, sadly, talking about death, but on the other hand, maybe happily, talking about something that we all have to face, and we need to talk about it. And children need to talk about it in in the right way at the right time. And Linda, you mentioned earlier in the first half of the show that um, those who make death a taboo subject and never talk about it are setting themselves and their family up for some real difficult times. And um, one of the things we put in the book, we talked to a, a man one time who really taught us some things. He said he saw three advantages in actually talking about death. Not obsessively, not all the time, but here's what he said. It's very interesting. Thinking about death prompts questions and brings about the thought and effort necessary to acquire an understanding of it and to deepen our faith because we don't fear what we understand. 
So that was his first point. His second one, thinking about death and talking about it and about its inevitability and unpredictability makes us more aware of life, more tuned in and more appreciative of each moment, of each aspect of life. That's an interesting one. Yeah, that really is. And third... Thinking about it and about the eternity that follows makes the worries and trials of this short earth life seem smaller and easier to bear. Thus it becomes easier to live with the problem and difficulty of daily life. So think about that, and Shakespeare may have said it best of all. Think of this as a wonderful Shakespeare quote. Be still prepared for death, and death or life shall be therefore the sweeter. Oh, that's really great. I love that. I had not looked at that for a long time. Let me say that again because it's so poignant and clear. Be still prepared for death, and death or life shall be thereby the sweeter. You know, we had the most fascinating experience a lot of years ago now. We took our kids on a, a humanitarian expedition to an African village, and we had the opportunity to have a little panel discussion with our teenagers. Their teenagers, our teenagers. Yeah. And they asked the most fascinating questions. They uh, that, that was the thing. They were going to ask each other questions. Yeah, yeah. And our questions were kind of duh, but the, their questions were incredible. They were like, what do you use for your fertilizer? And our teenagers like, whoa. <laughs> What's uh, fertilizer? What is fertilizer? <laughs> but then the second question was, what do you do at your funerals? Yeah, what do you do when yeah. someone dies? These little African kids. These teenagers, because it was such a big part of their lives. And they wanted to know what we did. And again, our kids were kind of a deer in the headlights because a lot of them had never been to a funeral. They did not know. But it was, I thought that was so fascinating because it's such a... Death is such a part of life for so much of the world because they lose so many people in their lives. Let us read you a little metaphor. Sometimes the best way to talk to kids about anything is through examples and metaphors. This is one that I think you can remember and paraphrase if you ever have the opportunity to use it. We're going to alternate paragraphs and just read you here for just a couple of minutes. And think about this as the metaphor for what we're talking about. Imagine for a moment that you are about to cross the country on a train. You get on board, and as the train starts, you find yourself sitting next to a fine person who's making the same journey that you are. Since the trip usually takes almost four days, you begin a serious attempt to get to know each other. You find that you have much in common. And by the time the train seems to be into the darkness at the end of the first day, you feel a remarkable closeness and you begin to feel that the relationship you are now forming may be one of the most important parts of your train journey. After a second night's sleep in the Pullman car, you rejoin your friend and the two of you spend another day relating to each other and experiencing the journey together. Your rapport grows still stronger and you find yourself feeling a little sorry that the day day passes so fast. By the second night, your train is deep into the flat middle plains, and as you fall asleep, you're thinking about the things you want to find out and talk about with your friend the next day. In the morning, you return to your seat and find to your great dismay that your friend is gone. When you inquire, someone tells you that he got off of the train during the night. Got off during the night? But he had a destination very near your own, and you had planned on having the next two days with him, and there was so much more left to say. Suddenly, you realize that you never did find out quite where he came from or just who he really was, and 
that you never did learn why he was on the train or exactly where he was going. Worst of all, you realize that you don't know whether you'll see him again, and you don't know how to find him or contact him. So the feeling you have is a mixture of sadness and frustration, which together produce something in between bitterness and anger. Why did he have to leave? Did someone or something make him leave? Should you be upset at him for leaving or at someone else who made him go against his will? It's not so much that he's gone, it's that you don't know where he's gone. And you want to know, you want so much to see him again. At that point, the porter comes down the road to your seat. The message he leaves is very simple, but it changes night into day and bitterness into joy. He tells you that your friend was indeed going to the same place as you, that he was going there to see his father. During the night, the train received an emergency message which instructed your friend to get off the train at the next stop and catch a plane to get home more quickly because his father needed him right then. The porter leaves you a phone number so that you can contact your friend as soon as you arrive. The simple message the porter gives you turns your frustration into peace. You're still sorry to miss the two days of discussion you had anticipated with your friend, but your sorrow is no longer bitter or blind. Rather, it is sweet with the knowledge of where he is and with the assurance that you will see him again. So that you get the, you get the point. The sorrow we taste with the loss of a loved one can be bitter or sweet. And if we know where he's going and that he just got there a little before we did, then that makes a big difference. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said that whole metaphor much simpler. Here's a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Our friend and we were invited abroad. His chair was ready first, and he is gone before us. We could not all conveniently start together, and why should you and I be grieved at this, since we are soon to follow and know where to find him? <laughs> <laughs> so we read that whole metaphor, and then Benjamin Franklin said it in like one sentence. Yeah. yeah. But you get the point, and if, 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 you, if children or others in your family can think of of that metaphor, it's like a train ride. Some people get off a little before we do and find a faster way to get to the destination. You know, it's something to think about. I know, it's easy to say, but that's hard on the day-to-day, -day, really difficult in, in so many cases. A couple more quotes that I think are classics. Of course, the William Wordsworth, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. And Sir Walter Scott said this, is death the last sleep? No, it is the last and final awakening. Wow. Nathaniel Hawthorne, we sometimes congratulate ourselves at the moment of waking from a troubled dream. It may be so at the moment of death. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes you cry. I mean, some of these are so beautiful. Some of the sentiments that people have figured out about about death, those who are more spiritual than we are. Here's one from Brigham Young. There is no period known to the dead in which they experience so much joy as when they pass through the portals of death and enter upon the glorious change of the spirit world. Wow, I'm just thinking of Virginia. Man, that had to be a lot of joy when people on the other side are, are rejoicing at her entrance, but of course it's sad for her husband who's struggling with Parkinson's and has a lot of wonderful family support, but there are a lot of emotions surrounding death and probably it's good in the end. You know, um, 
Linda, what would you say to someone who's been listening in today? And let's say that person is a parent. And let's say that person lacks personal faith. Let's say that person is not at all sure in the immortality of the soul. And, you know, let's say that this is an agnostic, basically meaning I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. We just were here and we don't know if there's anything that comes later. Um, is it still a good idea for that person to try to talk about death or to try to find opportunities to help a child be prepared for a death when it comes? What do you think? I mean, does this all hinge on faith? And if there's no faith, you have nowhere to go? Wow, that is such a scary thought for me because there are so many people in the world who don't believe in a life after death and some religions. And I just can't imagine not thinking that that will be the end. But even if you don't believe that there's a life after death, I think it it helps you to live a better life when you know there's an end. You know, when the end is coming, you don't you don't know when the end is coming, but the end is coming. And it helps you to be a better person, to live well, to accomplish the very most that you can while you're here on Earth. Well, I think one of the reasons I remember clearly that we wanted to write this book in the first place was that as we were doing some research, we found so so many beautiful sentiments expressed from from not necessarily just religious leaders, from poets, from Shakespeare, from Benjamin Franklin, from Nathaniel Hawthorne, from such a wide swath of people, some of faith and some not of faith, that really gave comfort and that gave more than comfort, gave actual joy in terms of the continuity and the ongoing nature of the eternal soul. And so the idea was to give people, particularly parents, to arm them with with some powerful sentiments, even if their own faith wasn't very strong, to be able to say, look, there are a lot of really smart, really, really famous, in many cases, people who had some really strong feelings about the fact that there's more to us than just a physical brain and body, and and to give children a chance to feel some of those beautiful sentiments and develop their own faith, even if the parent may be lacking to some degree in faith. In other words, a child doesn't necessarily have to follow the same faith limitations that the parent does. If the parent is wise enough to say, hey, there's a lot of ways to look at this, and here are some of them that are, that are worth thinking about. You know, there's one side effect for our lives when we have loved ones who pass on, and that is, it is such a refining experience to help someone through to, through to death, through death. And uh, you learn so much about yourself, and it refines your spirit. It beca- if, you, if you think about it in the right way, it is a refining uh, aspect yeah, of life yeah. that you can only do one way, and that is to help somebody ease into the next world. I think those who care for those who are dying, and we just had a really sad experience with a nephew who passed away early. And uh, he had a 
eating disorder and couldn't eat and yeah. to the point where he actually passed away. And that was a tragedy. And that was a tragedy, but wow, what his parents were surrounded with love and people, and he was surrounded with love. It is an amazing experience. And I want to just end quickly, Linda, and you'll chime in on this. My dearest friend, all through school, all through college, all into our early married lives, was a wonderful friend named Richard Rosine who died early. And this was his favorite quote, and I want to end with this and have you comment on it. He used to say all the time, and this is from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. And that is so joyful. We, we leave you with that. That is a, a wonderful thought, and we... We hope that you enjoyed today in thinking about your own family and your own experience, and we hope you'll join us again next time on Ayers on the Road. Ayers on the Road. See you next time. <laughs>